from KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, bears are foraging for berries in Jackson Hole as they get ready to hibernate for winter. And this means residents need to be extra vigilant. They aren't providing food sources on their properties. So there was a female black bear and two cubs that were recently relocated by Game and Fish. It was because she had access to bird seed and probably some trash as well. And later, we go mushroom foraging. The wet summer weather has been great for finding fungi in Teton County, but don't expect local foragers to share secret whereabouts. It's the same thing with hunting elk. You don't reveal your favorite hunting area to your closest friends, and even then it's risky. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for joining us today. A group of women recently made their way up Wyoming's second highest peak to celebrate the 100th anniversary of a legendary female ascent. Eleanor Davis became the first known woman to climb the Grand Teton in 1923. Wyoming Public Radio's Hannah Haberman was along for the adventure a century later. On a sunny August morning, a group of 26 women of all ages walk up and down steep rock slabs in sticky rubber approach shoes. Below them are the sparkling blue waters of Jenny Lake, and above them are the jagged granite peaks of the Tetons. As soon as I heard about this climb, I thought that sounds like something I should do. And I I really do believe courage is like a muscle, and unless you push yourself to where you're uncomfortable, you don't get stronger. That's Don Rucker, who lives in Jackson and is taking part in a two-day training to learn the skills needed to navigate the Grand Teton. Tying knots, managing ropes, rock climbing, rappelling, and walking on steep terrain. Rucker is there with her friend Ellen Houlihan, who lives in North Carolina. The two went to West Point together and are now adventure partners. Don has this motto that once a year we should do something that gets our hearts pumping a little hard and maybe scares us a little bit. So this is that adventure for this year. Morgan McGloshan is one of the guides teaching the training and is no stranger to breaking glass ceilings in the mountains. When she was 19, she became the youngest woman to ski the Grand Teton and says going into the mountains with a group of all women is something special. It's very exciting and fun and powerful and important and sparkly and beautiful. (laughs) McGloshan, who is now 28, helped organize the climb and was the youngest guide working at Exum Mountain Guides when she started in 2020. I think it is really exciting and important that Exum is doing this climb as a way to help get and see more women out in the mountains. And it's also a really cool celebration of the centennial. Kimberly Guile works at the Exum office and is often referred to as the guiding company's unofficial historian. She says Eleanor Davis's 1923 climb of the Grand was actually very early in the history of its known ascents. So this was not only the first recorded female ascent, but only the third party to summit and only the fourth recorded ascent of the peak. Davis was the physical education instructor at Colorado College and the vice president of the Colorado Mountain Club. Guile says that on the day Davis summited the Grand with her friend Albert, the six other men in their party turned around before the top. 
The fact that Eleanor Davis was on this early climb of the Grand Teton is notable because climbing was a very male-dominated sport at that time, but obviously she was capable and more than able to hold her own. A hundred years later, the group of all-female climbers and guides splits in half and heads into the mountains in two waves over the weekend. On the first day, the women hike more than six miles up a steep trail and gain almost 5,000 feet in elevation. They camp at the lower saddle below the Grand, where Exum guide Jessica Baker points out the path they'll take up the next day. And then that's where you start into the famous belly crawl, belly roll, Owen chimneys, and then up into the sergeant chimneys, and then scrambling the rest of the way to the summit. The next morning, the group wakes up in the dark and starts hiking at 4.30 a.m. They navigate up steep slabs and rocky ramps. Then they rope up to tackle the so-called belly roll and crawl of the climb. Juana, I'm going to bump up ahead so that I'll like go belay you. So when the rope comes tight, you can say, and even if you can't hear me, which you might not be able to, yeah, go ahead and climb. Juana Johansson is waiting for her rope to go tight to start traversing on an exposed ledge with thousands of feet of open air below. Juana, how are you feeling? Good, how are you doing? Good. Yes, how was the morning part? Pretty great. Yeah. Johansson, who was born in the Philippines and now lives in Jackson, was able to come on the climb thanks to a scholarship from Exum, Women in the Tetons, and the Teton Climbers Coalition. She says her presence as a woman of color is helping to break down barriers. This stuff is like rewriting narrative. But like we can rewrite the story and just be here, you know? While not everyone chooses to go all the way to the top, a group reaches the summit just before 8 a.m. So good, yay! There's lots of laughing, hugging, and putting on glitter. A bed of fluffy clouds covers the valley below, and the blue sky feels enormous. Paige McLeod is one of the climbers on the summit. She's taking it all in. This morning, I was not sure. Um, how am I feeling now? Kind of um, in awe. In awe. McLeod lives in Wilson and can't stop looking at the view. It's a miraculous thing to be up here. Among all these awesome women and with glitter on their faces. Johansson is also on the summit and gets her picture taken, standing tall with her arms out wide and a huge grin on her face. I just finished crying. <laughs> there could be more tears. <laughs> but I feel super just grateful to be here. <laughs> it's a magic place. Amazing. That's me, Morgan. <laughs> Later. Later. <laughs> <laughs> After about half an hour on the summit, the group starts descending back down to camp. Back at the lower saddle a few hours later, Johansson says the experience was deeply cathartic. Honestly, I think I left a lot up there. I was allowed to leave some stuff up there I'd been carrying. Johansson says she'll be taking home a feeling of being welcomed into the climbing community. Those, um, like kind of the dissolution of lines between like being separate and, you know, yeah, it feels very much like we all had to move as one being up this amazing being. <laughs> what will the next 100 years of climbing look like in the Tetons? For Johansson, she says she hopes the narrative can keep changing about who is climbing in the mountains. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Hannah Haberman.
Bears are foraging for berries in Jackson Hole as they get ready to hibernate. Grand Teton National Park is advising people driving to and from Moose, Teton Village, and Wilson to be cautious on the roadway. And a heightened bear presence means residents need to be keeping their properties free of attractants like trash, fruit from trees, and birdseed. Cole Stewart with Bearwise Jackson Hole has been helping lead the charge to keep people informed about the region's new rules around keeping properties bear safe. This includes having bear-resistant trash cans in many parts of Teton County. He recently spoke with KHOL's Hannah Mersbach about keeping locals and bears safe. And part of this means moving bird feeders. So people not hanging those bird feeders like so they're inaccessible to bears. Essentially, that means like that if it's going to be inaccessible, it needs to be 10 feet off the ground and four feet from any supporting structure, including the limb that it's hanging from. A lot of people don't have like a tree that works very well for that in their yard. So that often leads to bears getting into them. I'm wondering what kinds of misconceptions you even hear from long-term residents who've been living in bear country for a long time, but may still not know about things like bird feeders. So there was a female black bear and two cubs that were recently relocated by Game and Fish. It was because she had accessed bird seed and probably some trash as well. And I think that really speaks to some of the misconceptions that we see throughout the community that bears aren't necessarily out in the middle of the valley. And that just is completely contrary to that. Essentially, bears can be in your yard accessing your bird seed or your garbage, regardless of where you're at in Teton County. What should people be looking out for in the coming weeks? I know bears are bulking up for winter right now. Mm -hmm. This year has been really uh, mixed reports on the berry crop. I've heard, you know, anything from like in some places it's really great to other places it's not very good. Uh, I think that's pretty typical in that if conditions are just right for one species of plant that produces berries, it may not be perfect for another. And given the moisture that we've had this year, it's, it just hasn't worked out well for some species. So we may notice that bears start to key in on food sources that are in more residential areas. Those could be crab apple trees and things like that. So really the most important thing right now, I think, is, is have people be aware that bears could be coming into their neighborhoods, focusing in on their crab apple trees or other fruit bearing trees that they may have. And both the Teton County and Town of Jackson regulations prohibit those from being like accessible to bears. So as those fruits ripen, uh, residents are actually required to either harvest those or rake them up and remove those from the property so bears aren't attracted to those areas. That's the one thing I would really focus in on. The other one is, is just because we have bear-resistant trash cans like very widespread within the county doesn't mean that everybody's using them properly. As I've been out in the neighborhoods a lot lately, I've seen that some of those bear-resistant trash cans are snow-coned is what we call it, and that means when they're like overfilled with garbage. So you'll see that the top isn't latched properly. Uh, there's also some trash cans in the community that are a little bit older and starting to age out, especially in areas like Teton Pines and Teton Village. Some of those are going to need replaced really soon, especially if the latches aren't working properly. Is there anything else we should be thinking about right now? Anything else you want to add? One of the biggest issues is that historically, there may not have been as high a bear densities as there are currently, especially in terms of grizzly bears. Historically, the grizzly bear population was much smaller and was kind of restricted to maybe the northern portions of Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone National Park. Now we have these bears 
The population's probably over a thousand bears, and they're expanding into some of their historic range, so down south of Jackson and areas like the Wyoming Range and like that. And so what that leads to is, is bears may not necessarily want to occupy these developed areas, but they need to pass through them to get from point A to point B. And obviously, if there's attractants like bird feeders or garbage or compost or even fruit-bearing trees like crab apples, like that can stop the bears on their movements through and result in conflicts, which can lead to bears being either relocated or euthanized, which is, you know, last resort, but unfortunately happens too often. Cole Stewart with Bearwise Jackson Hole speaking with KHUL's Hannah Mersbach about keeping properties free of bear attractants as they forage locally for berries and get ready to hibernate for winter. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger Teton National Forest. Not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Jackson Unpacked comes from 122 Resource Center, guiding members of our community towards stability and growth by providing financial assistance, food access, emergency resources, financial education, and economic independence. That's what we're here for. More information at 122jh.org. Thanks for tuning in to Jackson Unpacked. I'm Tyler Pratt. KHOL is in the midst of a year-long effort in our community to bring strangers with different political beliefs together for a conversation. This is part of a nationwide initiative led by StoryCorps that seeks to mend political divisions and find common ground. KHOL is one of five stations participating in this effort around the country in 2023. Cindy Budge and Dave Loy are two longtime Jackson residents who surprisingly didn't know one another. Budge is a Democrat. Loy is a Republican. And after 40 years of living in the same town, they finally met at the Center for the Arts last month. Here's a snippet of their One Small Step conversation. Do you ever feel troubled by people with the same beliefs as you? People on your own side and how they communicate those beliefs to others. I do. Um, A lot of it because I don't feel that they're listening and they are so entrenched in what their beliefs are and they're the judgment of another person and the lack of empathy for where another person, you know, having walked, you haven't walked in their shoes so you have no idea how they got to where they got. And when I hear someone being really adamant today, I, I a lot of times will actually try to back them up a little bit. Um, not back them up in what they're saying, but to try to say, but there is another side here, or there are other points, viewpoints. And I know that in the past, I was very much that way. What I was, if they're right? 
Is anybody ever 100% right? Well, I didn't say 100%. I was talking about a specific, you know, argument they were making. I'll listen, and I, that's what I want other people to do. I mean, be there doing. are extremists on both sides. There you are. Know, so you got to take that into account. But. There are. And some of the very people that have the same beliefs as me, I feel, are extremists. And I, I, I have tried to look hard at... Um, I might agree with a lot of what they're saying, but I don't necessarily like the way that they're giving the message and trying to jam it down someone's throat. Yeah, but what I was saying is what if they were right in that particular conversation? What we call well, extremists they, today might have been the normal where they, yes. when they grew up. So it's saying here the same beliefs as me. I yeah. already do agree with them on, on some level, not 100% necessarily, but on some level. I guess the key to that is how they communicate those beliefs to others. Yes. You said it exactly yeah. the way I should have said I it. I guess uh, it's like that old saying, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Yep. Which, catch, that's, that's a pretty catch big more thing. more flies with honey than with vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> honey always works on me. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, you said what I was trying to say. Yeah, I, I don't have anything to add to that. It's the same thing, you know. Some of them, sometimes they seem to go a little overboard in their presentation, but the basic fact that they're communicating, I agree with, just not how they're putting it out there. Dave Loy and Cindy Budge in conversation for One Small Step, a nationwide initiative from StoryCorps and KHUL that aims to mend political divisions and help find common ground. It's part of a year-long effort in our community to bring strangers with different political beliefs together for conversations that will live on in the Library of Congress. It's being produced for KHUL by Allison Sperry. For more information or to sign up to participate, head over to 891KHUL.org. We're approaching the end of mushroom season in Wyoming, but foragers say thanks to a summer of wet weather, there's been a bumper crop of some prized varieties, including chanterelles and porcinis, likely making for some delicious dinners and possibly some extra cash for foragers. And an effort is underway to document the region's wild mushrooms, the first of its kind in more than 40 years. KHOL's Emily Cohen, a fungophile herself, has the story. It's a damp Saturday here in the Tetons, and 71-year-old Benji Sinclair is ready to hunt. Hunt for mushrooms, that is. More botany. I like to take people on walks, like what we're doing. This is my favorite thing. <laughs> and teaching people about the diversity. Outfitted with a canvas tote filled with field guides, Sinclair spots a mushroom alongside the trail. They're pretty. Little nipples. And I'm pretty sure these are edible. Not very tasty. And they're so small. You're not going to get much of a food, you know. Mushroom season here typically begins in late May and lasts through September, ending when conditions get too dry or too cold. Learning about the diversity in the region is a group effort partly because there isn't a field guide specific to mushroom species in the Tetons. The last survey specific to mushrooms 
in northwest Wyoming was in 1982. Until now. It's a wood mold? Yeah, it's definitely natural art, too. This spring, Sinclair formed a Facebook group to help document local mushroom varieties, an informal citizen science initiative that he hopes will one day lead to a field guide. An ecologist and local wildlife guide, Sinclair says his fascination with mushrooms is a relatively new hobby. I kept seeing really interesting mushrooms. The more I noticed them, uh, the more I wanted to photograph them. So I, I realized there's no like local field guide for mushrooms. And some of them are incredibly fascinating and weird. Um, and the edible ones are delicious. Wild edible mushrooms like morels and chanterelles are a delicacy and usually sell for around $40 a pound, but can fetch as high as $200 depending on the conditions and supply. If you know how to find them, though, you've got yourself a free gourmet dinner. It's a, you know, a mystery. It's a, it's a treasure hunt. It's a real treasure hunt. So anybody can do it, and it gets you out. And it's always just a delight to find edible mushrooms anywhere you go. Half the battle in the search for elusive edible mushrooms is understanding when and where to look. Burn scars, dense forests, riverbanks, and they are often secret. Yeah, most foragers don't want to talk about their spots for a good reason. And hopefully they know that they're foraging sustainably by cutting their mushrooms off at the at ground level. It's like it's the same thing with hunting elk. You don't reveal your favorite hunting area to anybody, your closest friends, and even then it's risky. Sinclair is hosting a mushroom talk at the Teton County Library this month about the edible, the dangerous, the deadly, and the just plain weird. Joining him is Luke Bruner, who studied mycology in graduate school. That's the science of fungi. That there's a concept of evolution being this battle between individuals, and that plays a role in diversification. And that's sort of our common knowledge of evolution is this tooth and nail battle. But life itself is predicated on these mutually beneficial relationships. Bruner says he certainly appreciates a meal of sautéed chanterelles with garlic and butter, but is most fascinated by the role mushrooms play in the ecosystem. So the first land plants already had fungi associated with them. The first large organisms on Earth were these prototaxis, you know, 10-foot-tall mushroom bodies. It's a different way of looking at life itself, is that, hey, we're all, we all benefit from each other. So if you respect that and realize that, yes, there's these, these interactions that, that might help shape our identities, but really it's all predicated on helping each other. There appears to be a growing interest in mushrooms, nationally and here in the Tetons. The popular Netflix documentary Fantastic Fungi and Michael Pollan's best-selling book How to Change Your Mind about the medicinal benefits of psilocybin may have something to do with that. And interest may have grown in the pandemic as more people began exploring wild places. I think it's kind of the part of the back to nature uh, thing with a lot of urban people that really want to get closer to nature. 
Well, you just look at the numbers of people that are going camping for the first time. I think it's just a fascination with the oddities of nature. Social media has a lot to do with it. There's a gazillion mushroom sites. Mushrooms are good for your health, but consuming the wrong type can be dangerous. There were a few prominent mushroom poisonings just this year, and two people died from undercooked morels, cultivated overseas and eaten at a Bozeman sushi restaurant. Sinclair cautions foragers to be extra careful, too. There are old mushroom hunters. There are bold mushroom hunters. But there are no old, bold mushroom hunters. I don't consider myself an old or bold mushroom hunter, but I do love it, especially if it means a delicious meal afterwards. Just don't ask me to reveal my secret foraging spots. For KHOL, I'm Emily Cohen. For those looking to learn more about mushrooms in the region, you can search Teton Fungophiles on Facebook. Before we go today, Jackson Hole residents recently got a dose of grandpa music. That's what singer-songwriter, yodeler, and multi-instrumentalist Nick Shoulders calls his style of sound. The Arkansas native and his OK Crawdad band played the Mangy Moose, and he recently spoke with KHOL's music director, Jack Catlin, about his family's deep ties to Southern traditional music, his take on modern country, and how yodeling and whistling work musically for him. My grandma used to say something to the effect of like, you know, People used to whistle, and I think what she was saying is that when it was a function of our day-to-day lives and not necessarily like, you know, a product or an industry that we interact with around music, that when music was sort of a function of daily living, that people were better at it. And it was just sort of generally like people enjoyed and loved music so much more. And I think that's what people see in country and folk music and get attached to is that sort of like that line back to to a time when this music was sort of functional and not surrounded by an industry. When did you first notice that yodeling and whistling could really work with the music you were making? I didn't really receive any sort of honest critical feedback about the styles of music I was into and producing until I left Arkansas and got out of the South significantly. And when I was playing on street corners and in little clubs or whatever out West, on my travels while I was living in my van, I noticed people were really reacting to to that stuff and were really like kind of drawn to it in a way that I had always been, frankly, slightly embarrassed. You know, I thought it was pretty novel or even hokey, you know, to like to draw from this stuff and started pretty quickly realizing that people really saw themselves in it and then started to realize that yodeling and whistling were not sort of endemic and peculiar to American Southern country music, those styles, you know, you can hear yodeling in uh, in West Africa, you can hear it in Hawaiian traditional music, you know, you can hear it in the Southwest. It's it's really that style of break note singing is something pretty universal to the way people made music. And it, it speaks to folks in every corner of, of anyone that I've interacted with. And I think that that's another one of those like tapping into the greater lineage that I think that we get to do something so cool to like to sing all the time. And it just so happens that my way of singing is like kind of archaic and based in like skill sets that were, you know, rooted in the land. And I think that that has a specific sort of light that it turns on for people. And you have a complex relationship with modern country music. You've been outspoken about it. And I really like this quote from your uh, country music art page on your website. One poster in the series reads, these are divided times. 
And this genre now belongs to us all, but lest we forget country music is a product of inequality and doesn't exist to glorify the powerful. Can you expand on that for us? I think if you took the country music recordings of 1929, the sort of formative years, and what you get in 1969, you see two very different bodies of work. You know, there's a lot of, it's, you know, the, the world of the early country stars was one of never ending wars and bank failures and depression and dust bowls. And like, that's really reflected in the reality that you see in the songs. You know, you got your single girl, married girl being one of the early hits of country music. It's like an express critique of patriarchy. And it is like very much a like way of interacting with the powerful that is speaking truth to power. And then you fast forward to, you know, fight inside of me, Merle Haggard, and you've got something that is very much like reinforcing power and saying like, no, we won't ask any like hard questions. We won't question authority. This is, you don't love it, leave it. And those are two very different country musics. And I think that notion of country music being a product of a geographic experience, I think can, is easy to punch holes in, you know, saying it's just from the South doesn't necessarily really add up because it's not completely true in like a a really staunch pure sense and what i think is more instructive is to say like okay so if there's syncopation and certain vocal styles and chord structures within country music that are obviously coming from african-american influences and we're also seeing native american influences hawaiian influences and it's coming together in the specific place that is functionally plural but legally segregated being the American South, then we can say like, okay, this may not have a geographic origin, but it's a, an expression of distaste with power. It's a reaction to systems of oppression, to inequality. And because it's common people music, there has to be aristocrats for there to be common people, you know? And so for there to be the contrast, there really needs to be an assessment of how harsh that inequality is between the planner aristocracy and everybody else in, in the South specifically. And I think that that's where you get into something more unifying is you can be like, well, country music is is founded in rebellion rather than it's founded in the South or it's founded in the West. Because, I mean, when you say country and Western, you're talking about Western soundtracks like the Western in country and Western was about theatrical roles on, on Hollywood movies. And, you know, for for me and for people who are really trying to ask honest questions of country music and about power. It's not a theatrical role. It's something really painful and deep and something that we like hold on to dearly. And so that notion of reclaiming country as something more than rural music and like rooting it to family and rooting it to the experience in the South and how drastic that inequality is. I think that's that's kind of our whole work here, you know. Musician Nick Shoulders speaking with music director Jack Catlin. You can get to the full interview at 891k2l.org. Today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL Jackson. Mm-hmm.